3CR acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. How are we this morning? Yeah, very well. Nice to have you back live in the studio with me, Claudia. I was, of course, uh, you were uh, presenting remotely last week. That's right. Um, Yeah, great to be back in the the studio and uh, 2nd of March, where the year is really underway. Yes, definitely is. (laughs) And we have such a busy show today, haven't we, Ella? We do. We've got a jam-packed show, a good mix of guests. Do you want to run through the lineup? Yeah, let's do it. So, um, yeah, first up, we've got a very special guest. My mum is going to be uh, joining us from Brisbane, and she's going to be telling us a bit about the Brisbane floods. Um, so, thankfully, my parents are both okay and their homes all right. But um, yeah, a lot of people they know haven't been so lucky. Um, and she's been yeah calling me the last few days. I've been getting updates, and I thought, why not have her on um, to tell us all about it? That would be really great to get a first-hand um, experience from someone. Yeah, yeah, local. Um, yeah, we've been seeing a lot of news and images and it's all quite horrific. So, yeah, it'd be great to um, hear what she has to say. Yeah, and then a little after that at um, 7.30, I'm going to be speaking with filmmaker Robin Murphy. Uh, so her film Women of Steel is about the 1980 to 1994 campaign by Wollongong Women for women, sorry, Wollongong Women for Jobs, bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> Um, in the BHP AIS Steelwork. Um, so the film looks at issues such as sexual harassment, discrimination and unequal wages. And yeah, documents a really landmark case with a lot of relevant issues for today. Yeah, that'll be really interesting and such a big, prominent company. So um, yeah, really um, important to, to see you know, accountability there and um, what's happening in that particular workplace. Yeah, absolutely. So following on from the documentary theme, I'll be talking to Lauren Velmaldry at 7.45am. She's the Programming Director at the Australian International Documentary Conference, which kicks off in Melbourne this weekend. And she'll be talking about a few different things. Um, but one of the things she'll be talking about is the the issues that face social impact documentary makers, um, including issues to do with finance and, yeah, also how you measure social impact when you're making documentaries. And she's also going to be talking about a groundbreaking new documentary called Flee that's sort of taken the world by storm. It's been nominated for three Academy Awards, which is a a first for a documentary film. And uh, it's particularly um, pertinent because it's a very intimate telling of a Afghan man who lives in Denmark and it's a story of his coming out both as a gay person but also um, his childhood fleeing Afghanistan as a refugee. Um, and it's all 
made with archival footage but also animation. So, yeah, that's why it's particularly groundbreaking and I guess grabbed the attention of um, the different uh, film bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like a really excellent film. I'm yet to see it myself but I've heard a lot of good things. Mm, yeah, it's in the, the cinemas at the moment. And uh, following on from that, we'll be talking to playwright T. O'Neill and she has a new play called Yelembo, and that's opening at La Mama next week. So she's going to be having a chat about um, what the play is about uh, and, yeah, the themes which also relate to asylum seekers but in a fictional setting. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to finish up the show. I'll be speaking with Dr Alex Edney-Brown. Um, so she's going to be telling me about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was released earlier this week. Um, so with global heating on track to exceed 1.5 degrees, the report paints a pretty grim picture of the consequences of inaction. And, yeah, we're going to hear more about the details later on. Mm, also very pertinent with uh, the flooding that's happening around the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so you know, we're seeing more and more of these um, freak weather events mm. um, and extreme weather events. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's not a coincidence. No, sadly. Um, yeah, so really good to get the up, the minute, up to the minute uh, from her. Excellent. All right. And in the meantime, let's get started with a song. Uh, this is Penhao Semming from uh, Penron Corn Pinyao. ไม่ไงทับกองเกไม่ไงทับรถอัพเวอร์
Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy. Taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022.
You're listening to 3CR, and that was Little Sunflower from Dorothy Ashby. And now we're going to talk about the Brisbane floods, and we're joined by a very special guest, Fiona, also known as my mum. Good morning, and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Mum. Good morning, Ella. <laughs> yet lovely to talk with you so early in the morning. <laughs> yes. Now, I think it's fair to say you are somewhat of a reluctant guest, so I should point out to listeners uh, you're in Brisbane, so you are, of course, an hour ahead. You've made time at 6.15 in the morning, so it's much appreciated. No problem. You've definitely put me out of my comfort zone early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry it's taken a natural disaster to make it happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now, um, southeast Queensland and now a lot of New South Wales have been experiencing horrendous floods over the last week. Um, I think anyone who's been watching the news will have seen images of these unbelievable water levels. They've been covering some houses completely. Uh, cars have been washed away. Um, you live in the inner north of Brisbane. I'm pleased to say our family home is still okay. Uh, but you live near Kedron Brook, which is a big waterway that runs through there. Um, it's a popular area for walking your dog. You're down there a lot. Can you describe what it looks like now and how it's changed over the past week? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're definitely one of the lucky ones. It's um, it, the, the the flooding has affected so many parts of Brisbane, not just you know one or two suburbs, but you know many many suburbs. Um, but yeah, we live in North Brisbane, where we certainly had a lot of um, houses got, got a lot of water damage, um, and we live close to, as you said, and you know, we live on a beautiful brook, which um, is a local attraction that is very popular, particularly with dog walkers. You can have up to five kilometres walking with um, off lead with your dog, and there's parks on the um, along the um, brook and playgrounds, and it's got fish and turtles and beautiful um, vegetation that we all really love and um, it's just been decimated really it's um, just all the trees are gone all the lampposts are gone large parts of the um, walkway um, pathway has been torn away so it's it's really really sad yeah um, so that's sort of our local it I mean it sounds um, a bit trite I guess going on about the brook when people's houses have you know got water up to the roof in some suburbs but on a local level um, I guess that's how it's affected us. Yeah absolutely and you've um, yeah, sent some pictures through of a road that passes over the brook just near our house and uh, a whole chunk of it's been torn off it just shows how powerful the water is I think and how much damage it's caused. Yeah just incredible I don't know if you saw the photos but there was this huge container that somehow ends up flying down the brook and wrapping itself around one of the little bridges. So it just shows you the power of um, how fast the water was travelling. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, um, you guys find a lot of people nearby haven't. I think uh, it's worth explaining to Melbourne listeners, Brisbane is very hilly and a lot of houses are built a lot up. So it's very easy to have your house be okay when a neighbour or someone else on your street um, has had a completely different experience. Yeah, absolutely. Like the suburb of Orkinflower has been um, just put underwater, but, you know, some of Orkinflower is high, but a lot of it's low. So, yeah, it affect, and it's affected a lot of the suburbs with the older homes too, which is really sad. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you've been in um, Brisbane for a while now, so you've seen a few different uh, periods of heavy rainfall and were there in the 2011 floods. Um, not expecting you to be a scientific expert, but from your experience, how does it compare? Um, well, I think um, we were actually travelling at the time of the 2011 flood, so I think personally um, we haven't felt the impact as much um, because we sort of came back to it afterwards. But certainly from the devastation I'm seeing, I think it's affected a lot and, you know, a lot more suburbs. Um, it was a little bit more localised. And uh, my understanding is the 2011 floods, it, it was more concentrated around the rise of the, the Brisbane River, which floods, um, where this time it has definitely been around the, the rise of the Brisbane River with the volume of water and the tides, but also a lot of the local suburbs have been affected by local waterways and just the sheer volume of water. Um, I mean, I, I did read that, something like uh, Brisbane received something like 80% of its annual rain <clears throat> in three days. Oh, my God. Like, oh. Yeah, over 200 millimetres of rain each day um, for three days in a row. So I think it, the big difference is just the capacity, the amount of water um, that came. And our, our big um, dam, so you might remember Lake Wyvernhoe is our, the biggest dam that sort of is our, is our catchment, and I think it could capacity went from 58% or something to like 180 or 85% in three to four days. So it just shows you how much water yeah, 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 came down. So that was the difference, I guess. It was just the volume and how quickly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's taken quite a few people by surprise. Were you expecting it? Or? Well, I was out at a party on Saturday night and sort of standing around saying, gee, it's still raining. Um, <laughs> didn't really... <laughs> Didn't sort of, I don't know if it was just me, but most of the people at the party were pretty relaxed. Um, and, yeah, it didn't really become evident until the Sunday and um, where it just absolutely poured and, you know, wasn't coping with the volume of water that was coming down. And so, yeah, it did take a lot of people by surprise. People have lost, you know, a lot of valuables because they hadn't moved them. Um, usually there seems to be a bit more warning. Um, so we've got friends who have a business, um, an e-bike business that services the disability sector and they've lost so much stock. It's just tragic. Um, yeah, and a lot of stories of houses that have just particularly underneath been totally flooded. But compared to other places like Lismore, I think we're lucky. I mean, I think the whole, the whole town of Lismore has gone underneath and it's never been such a huge flood in the history Um of records, so yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really shocking. Yeah, like you said, a lot of people you know haven't been so fortunate. Um, you've had a couple of people who've had to seek refuge in your house over the weekend, is that right? Because they were positioned yeah. a little closer to the brook. Um, other yeah, friends yeah. who have been stranded in their homes or were over the weekend for a couple of days. Yeah, we have good friends who have property up at Karoi who got stuck into their, um, you know, they couldn't get out of their property and they had flooding all through their, their sheds. Um, and just devastation of their, their, you know, beautiful property. They've done a lot of planting and building of dams and things, and it's just been wiped out. Um, and, yeah, other friends who live on the brook and were just watching it come come, and come closer and closer and knew if they didn't get out, they'd be trapped. Um, so, yeah, we had a, a couple of people staying with us, though. So. Hmm. But they've gone home now and all's good. Good, glad <laughs> to hear it. 
And um, what's it like day to day? You and Dad are working from home, right? Are a lot of places closed? Are businesses and schools closed? Yeah. Well, um, my my business, my um, office is closed because of water damage. So I've been working from home. Yeah, Dad's been working from home. There has been no train network. The tr- the rail network got um, really badly damaged, and I don't think that's still up. Um, I think almost all schools are closed. Most of them opening again today, I believe, but there's still 100 or so schools that can't open. Some schools have been really badly flooded. Um, so, yeah, things like transport, it's, it's bizarre when you, you can't even get public transport and then the water treatment plant was also affected and we couldn't drink the water, um, so we were boiling water. Um, so, yeah, quite an impact. Well, yes, yeah, affecting all services across the city. And um, we are going to have to wrap up, but um, lastly, what's the atmosphere like in Brisbane and the, the sentiment around town? I imagine it's the floods have only just sort of abated, so I say it's only mm. just the beginning of recovery efforts. Do you know of anything? Well, I think it's like all, um, you know, big events and disasters at the time. There's all this adrenaline because everyone's thinking about their safety and, um, you know, just a in awe of the amount of water that's coming down, but now the reality of cleaning up is hitting people, and it's quite, you know, I think it's quite depressing and a bit, a bit sad at the moment because you know we're walking along the brook just thinking, how's it ever going to be restored? And particularly at the moment when there's so many difficulties with building supplies and getting things, um, you know, materials, you sort of feel for people whose houses have been affected because I think it's probably going to be a, a long and painful process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But on the positive note, it's a really sunny day here today. Um, I believe more rain is expected, but not to the same volume. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, enjoy the reprieve. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Mum. All right. Have a lovely day, darling. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that was my mum, Fiona, telling us about the Brisbane floods in her area. Apologies. And now we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to be speaking with filmmaker Robin Murphy about her documentary, Women of Steel. Uh, But in the meantime, here's Black Bowie. Oh, mm-hmm. 
you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Yarra City Arts and Umbrella Entertainment present Neighbourhood Watch, a pop-up outdoor cinema showcasing Australian films Friday nights throughout March. Head down to Linear Park, North Fitzroy, and catch free live music and films including The Big Steel, Storm Boy and The Babadook. BYO Picnic Blanket, Snack or Grab Dinner along Nicholson Street for Neighbourhood Watch. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break we heard Black Bowie from Oko Abamobo. And now we're going to be speaking with filmmaker Robin Murphy about her documentary Women of Steel. So good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Robin. Good morning, Ella. Now I just watched this film. Um, what an incredible story. Congratulations on bringing it to life um, and congratulations on the awards it's received. It's done very well. Yeah, thanks. That's great. <laughs> Um, now, the film documents Wollongong's 1980 to 1994 Jobs for Women campaign. So it was a 14-year fight for the right to work in Wollongong's steel industry. Um, could I get you to start by telling us what Wollongong was like in 1980? Well, Wollongong is known as a, a steel city and also a union town, very strong union base in Wollongong during that period. And... Um, the, the main jobs were at the steelworks, and everyone that lived in Wollongong had a relative that worked at the steelworks. But um, when women applied, they refused to employ them, and um, there wasn't much other work. Most of the other work was, you know, <laughs> clothing factories, um, and uh, they all got closed down within a few years and got outsourced overseas. So, yeah, pretty dire situation for women. Two-thirds of the unemployed were female, uh, two-thirds of the young unemployed, and huge migrant uh, communities, so uh, lots of women 
you know, very isolated in in their own um, communities, not able to work. So, yeah, like, it, it was... And the thing was that um, anyone could have done the work. So uh, that was the situation. And... Um, we just, uh, I was involved in a working women's charter group and um, we just decided that we, uh, oh, look, the thing that broke the camel's back, of course, was there was uh, a case of a young girl who had applied for a job in a chicken shop. Uh, the chicken shop owner was subsidised by government subsidies uh, so that he could employ all of these young women and he'd take them upstairs for a medical so called medical it was his own flat Um, yeah so he went through about um, I'm trying to remember the number about you know uh, 30 women in the space of six months who and nobody said anything but fortunately one of the women um, finally complained to her to her parents and said what had happened and luckily they were union members. It got taken up by the South Coast Labor Council and she was she went up to Sydney to the Anti Discrimination Board. They put a complaint in and of course it was public knowledge all through Wollongong of what this chicken shop owner had done. So that was, as I said, the straw that broke the camel's back and we just decided we've got to do something about it for all women. And um, we had a public forum and uh, got the support of the unions and, of course, the Working Women's Charter and we set up a committee to campaign for jobs at the Steelworks. So that was the beginning of a 30... Oh, well, 14-and-a-half-year campaign to win the right for women to work in you know, the male-dominated steelworks. Yeah, and yet you won this battle, but it was certainly a long one and it was um, hard one. It seems like you had to fight every step of the way, even after getting an initial yes. win on your complaint. You then had yes. to fight again after BP was going under. Yes, and of course, companies like BHP, which was the biggest company in Australia, they kept on appealing. So um, even when the initial win... Uh, you know, we were still we still had to wait years till it finally was heard in the High Court of Australia, and of course we won. Um, but yeah, it just a huge toll on on a lot of the women in terms of you know getting redress for what had happened to us. Yeah, and even getting legal counsel or legal aid, I should say, um, didn't oh, come yeah. easy. That was a fight yeah. in itself, by the sounds. It was. Yeah, look, we um, apparently, I mean, one of the reasons... So what what happened was we decided to use the anti-discrimination legislation. We wanted to run the class action. We didn't want just one individual woman to be hauled over the coals in front of the media about what she was doing. And we wanted to protect all women, make sure no one was, you know, picked out. And... um, they said legal aid. The legal aid commission in New South Wales said, "Oh well, we'd love to uh, give you legal aid, but there's no precedent. But these were new laws, and no precedent had ever been set because nobody could test them because nobody could get legal aid. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty bizarre catch twenty two. Yeah, How are you supposed to get one. <laughs> yeah, and we took us eighteen months to get legal aid. So yeah, long drawn out campaign. 
Uh, and yeah, I think um, we're all aware that society was pretty um, sexist back then. It, it still is in many ways, of course, but we have come some way. Um, but yeah, even knowing yeah. this, I was still pretty shocked hearing some aspects of life at the time. Um, you talk about in the film, uh, women weren't able yeah. to get a loan without a man. Um, at one stage, That's the film right. goes through this document. I think it was a BHP employment guideline for women. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. Yes, it was. Mm. You know? Basically says women can't be too thin or too small. They can't be too big. They they don't have to speak. Oh, they have to speak fluent English. Sorry, and um, I'm paraphrasing. It was even more offensive in the way they had written. Yeah, um, and of course, I mean the steelworks had about seventy, eighty, ninety different languages back back in 1980, um, and they were saying, oh, you know, it's okay to employ the men and, and get the sweat out of the men, but they used this excuse of. Um, you know, language, hairstyle. We couldn't wear hats because our hair had been done. I mean, it was crazy. But the the main thing that the company hid behind was a um, so-called health and safety legisl- legislation under this archaic Shops and Factories Act, which said that women couldn't lift more than 16 kilos or 35 pounds. And as Mike Willisey, who was one of the... Uh, Interviewers during the campaign said, that's the weight of a three or four year old on your hip, you know, or a load of wet washing. Um, so uh, we challenged that legislation. And in fact, during the court case, we also, it, we, you know, we, did, we actually exposed that that was a discriminatory piece of legislation right from the start. Yep. So, Very. Uh, yeah, no, it was a great campaign because it did change a lot of things. It changed legislation. It strengthened the anti-discrimination laws. And it opened up opportunities for women in all male-dominated industries because he was the biggest company in Australia being told, you have discriminated and you're going to pay compensation to these women. And so every other company just had to pull up their socks. But I'm not saying, I mean, I think things have changed, but there's some things that, you know, male culture, there's systemic issues throughout our country, yeah. throughout the world. And even um, I was thinking, watching it, thinking about the casualised workforce today, because you talk there, as you said, um, two thirds of the unemployed were women. But even for those who did have a job, it often wasn't a good one. People were often, or women were often poorly paid and working in dangerous conditions. Um, and you spoke about women who would work from home uh, who were called uh, outworkers or home workers right. who weren't yeah. covered. And it kind of reminded me today the people who are most at risk in these casual workforces are those who are lower socioeconomic and migrant workers. So, yeah, do you often yeah. wonder not that much has changed? And some of our online workers at home, working from home, online, you know, <laughs> it's, um, you know, like we really need to protect ourselves in terms of making sure that we have decent conditions and the, the right pay and often when you're stuck at home working you know you're totally isolated you know you've got no comparison and, and yeah uh, you know it's it's just ongoing yeah it's, it's um, always yeah the most marginalized who bear the brunt of it the most yes exactly 
And uh, with International Women's Day coming up and, uh, you know, like this is a time for people, for everyone to come out to camp- continue to campaign around our rights. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's great that it's actually being shown on the ABC TV Plus, on not only on International Women's Day on the Tuesday night next week, but also this Sunday coming uh, excellent, that, that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so you can watch it on ABC over the weekend on Sunday and Tuesday, was that right? That's right, yeah. Excellent. And for those who maybe don't have time at that stage, is there somewhere else they can get their hands on it? Well, you can go um, to our website and you can choose to watch it online or in a cinema or host a screening or even, you know, buy a DVD so there's there's lots of options, um, but you know, like to have it on to have it on the ABC for us, it's so important because so many independent filmmakers don't ever get to that point, and um, we believe this is a story. It's it's a little story in in the big picture, but it's an important story about um, you know our our ability to stick together, to organise and organise and keep on organising so yep. that we can win, so that we do win. And it's because we did win, it's um, it, it's a very inspiring... I don't know whether you thought it was inspiring, but uh, I'm continuing oh, to get inspired yeah. by, by all of the women. I'm not talking about myself, but all of the women that were involved in the campaign. Um and uh, they stood up to a company like BHP. So, I mean, it's actually a little part of history and we want it to to become a part of history in Australia that, you know, Prime Minister's a part of history. Oh, my God, you know, most of them you could, you know, I won't say. But, <laughs> but you know, like, I mean, this is, a, this is an important aspect of changing society and 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 just it's it's a very small part of changing male culture but it is. I mean I saw men's attitudes in the steelworks change in the period I was there. I also saw some that would never ever change their attitude. They were awful. But uh, as a lot of a lot of men realise, oh yeah, you can do the job. I mean, it was very patronising sort of way to look at it but they did change and um and we need you know it's by these sort of actions that we will change absolutely yeah the um solidarity was yeah very inspiring in particular and i think yeah it's um set this incredible precedent we're probably still feeling the effects of today um and it's these little wins um yeah i'm afraid that's all we've got time for this morning robin but thank you so much for joining us i really appreciate you making the time it sounds like you um, had another interview right before us so a busy morning for you the floods have changed everything here so um yeah no we yeah there's another example of people you know helping each other and sticking together Awful things happening up the north coast of New South Wales. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, absolutely. okay, Ella. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And um, just want to extend my thanks and also a happy International Women's Day to everybody. Absolutely. Down there that's listening and um, get out there and campaign and don't give up. It's, you know, we can, we can do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, 
important words. All right, thanks, yeah. Robin. Stay safe. Okay, cheers. Bye. Bye. And that was filmmaker Robin Murphy talking to us about her film, Women of Steel. Uh, now we're going to take a short break with Do the Job from Use No Hooks. We'll be back in just a moment. Like a 
Powers, do the job from Use No Hooks. Thanks, Ella. And now on the line we have Lauren Velmaldra. She is the Programming Director at the Australian International Documentary Conference, which is an annual conference uh, for documentary makers in Melbourne, and it's on this weekend. Lauren's going to talk to us about some of the issues facing makers of social impact documentary films, including questions around who is funding these films and their influence. She's also going to give us insight into a multi-award winning documentary film from Denmark called Flea, which uses animation to tell an intimate story of a child refugee from Afghanistan. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. We seem to be on a bit of a documentary theme this morning because we've just interviewed um, the director of Women of Steel about uh, sexual harassment in the steel industry with BHP. So, um, yeah, we're... Uh, we're in the fold this morning with documentaries. Oh, fantastic. Well, honestly, I'm all here for uh, any conversations around documentaries, so it's great to hear that we're talking about them even more. Yeah, absolutely. So can we just have a very brief explanation um, for listeners about what the Australian International Documentary Conference is about and what it offers those who are working in this space? Absolutely. Um, so the Australian International Documentary Conference, or AIDC, um, is Australia's premier event for documentary and factual content servicing the screen and digital media industries. So this is basically built um, with two major aspects. There's the conference, which I'm personally responsible for. Um, these are providing information sessions, um, intel and valuable insights for practitioners into um, industry, innovation, um, honing craft and kind of learning from the best in the business about the future of documentary and um, factual television, everything basically within the non-fiction sector. We try to cater for a broad church at AIDC, so we have a really big range of um, potential information sessions on offer there. And then as well as that, there is the industry side, which is more focused on um, the market where we have projects pitching to key decision-makers both within Australia and internationally, um, and we also facilitate meetings with uh, those practitioners and producers um, with decision-makers as well all throughout the conference. And what's the mood among local filmmakers at the, in the moment coming out of this period of uncertainty that we've had with COVID and lockdowns? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think the documentary industry in particular has really been through it, um, in the last 12 months, not just, you know, the, the more obvious aspects as COVID shut down production, particularly us in Melbourne here, who have probably faced some of the harshest um, restrictions. But um, just up until recently, we also had the media reforms that were looming, um, which were going to make it very difficult for documentary um, and independent documentary production uh, within Australia. Thankfully, they're not going through, but... Um, now we're kind of seeing a little bit more optimism after that has passed. And what the great thing is, um, with the conference in particular, we're adapting a hybrid model. So we totally understand um, that uh, people still want to be involved with the conference, but still maybe a bit nervous to be in public spaces. So we offer the festival to be um, accessed both physically on the ground and virtually online. Um, but I'm really thrilled to report that actually most of our tickets 
the vast majority actually are hybrid. They are people who are wanting to be um, together and, you know, meet with peers, share ideas, collaborate. So I think there is a real kind of sense of optimism and hope amongst um, and excitement amongst practitioners right now as we're starting to really get back on our feet as an industry. Yeah, there's always a really buzzy um, energy around the conference. I've been a couple of times and um, yeah, oh, it's great. always a fantastic feeling down at Fed Square. And I know you've got five different substrands of the conference in terms of what you're focusing on, but mm-hmm. I just thought for the um, our listeners today whether we could talk a little bit about social impact documentary and perhaps you could start us off by explaining what actually qualifies as a social impact documentary. Yeah, so when we talk about social impact documentaries, um, these aren't just films that have uh, social that are about social causes, whether that may be um, human rights or indeed it can vary into environmental um, various issues across the board. So when we're talking about impact campaigns, it's not just a film that um, uh, really opens up the discussion about these issues or captures these issues. It also has kind of an ongoing, lasting effect by attaching uh, what we call an impact came- campaign to it as well. So it's a more meaningful, thoughtful engagement with audiences um, that is kind of more encouraging to... Um, act further the conversation after the film is over, so to really instil some tangible change after watching the film. And I know um, one that did that really successfully was In My Blood It Runs, uh, Maya Newell's uh, documentary about um, a 10-year-old Aranta boy from yeah. Northern Territory and, and they ran, yeah. a, ran a really big social impact campaign uh, trying to bring down, bring, uh, sorry, raise the age for incarceration of uh, young children. Uh, mm. That was a, a really thought, thoughtful program and a very yeah, focused agenda that they had in terms of their impact goals. Uh, definitely. And um, we also actually have a session at the conference that really um, specifically looks at the success and the um, kind of effectiveness of impact campaigns called Lessons from the Field. Um, with Documentary Australia, and in that we use two case studies where we analyse their um, impact campaigns, how they were implemented and facilitated and the outcomes of that. Um, And one is we have two filmmakers with us, Dean Gibson from Incarceration Nation, which hopefully um, a lot of your listeners have seen. It's an incredible film that deals with uh, the incredible um, rates of Indigenous incarceration within Australia. It's it's quite shocking, but it's very impactful. So we'll be talking to Dean Gibson about that. And then we also have an environmental documentary film um, by Jane Hammond, who will be joining us, called Cry for the Forest, um, which is looking at, rather than a human rights social justice impact campaign, this looks at an environmental impact campaign as well. So kind of looking at um, you know, what works well, what doesn't, um, and how you can actually kind of instill more tangible change with your audiences. Excellent. And there are also um, sessions that are relating to the financing of social impact films. Can you share a little bit about what some of the, the questions are there that filmmakers face when it comes to accepting funds from private philanthropic and corporate investors? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, This is a really big conversation that we wanted to have because we can see 
And this may have also been, you know, something to do with those media reforms as well. But right now we're seeing a real um, influx of uh, different philanthropic uh, funding avenues, particularly around impact filmmaking um, for documentary filmmakers. And we just thought it was really important to have a discussion about how how you can try and make, I suppose, the right choices for you, for your film. Um, although, to be honest with you, you know, it, it is such a messy space. There are so many complications that are involved. So I don't think we're claiming to absolutely know everything, but at least we can start conversations about considerations filmmakers should be making when taking film from philanthropic funds. Mm. Well, it sounds like lots of uh, interesting conversations, definitely. And yeah. Before we go, um, I wanted to ask you about um, your conversation that you're going to be having with the director of Flea. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this film and why it has made such a stir in the movie world? Yeah, um, so Flea is uh, directed by Jonas Pogo Rasmussen, who will be a guest at uh, the conference this year. Um, and for those of you who may not know the story, it is following uh, Jonas's interviewing one of his uh, childhood friends, Amin Nawabi, which is a pseudonym. Um, and it's about him, I guess, opening up for the very first time about his experiences as a child refugee coming from Kabul um, and reuniting with his family in Europe. Uh, but it's not just about that. It's a beautiful film also about coming out, about friendship, about love, about a sense of home. Um, and this is an animated hybrid documentary, also with archival footage as well. Um, and it really has taken the world by storm. I think up to date, we're almost up to 70-plus international prizes and uh, historic three Oscar nominations for Best Documentary, Best Animated Feature and Best International Feature. And it really has opened up a lot of conversations about documentary films um, being, you know, maybe we're potentially entering a bit of a golden age of documentary cinema at the moment and it's because of films like this that have really kind of opened the doors to audiences and conversations that um, we really kind of want to also ask Jonas about as well as talking about the craft of this film, obviously the social relevance that a film like this has but also maybe the future of where documentary cinema is heading. Mm, and also the effectiveness of using different mediums and um, storytelling sort of styles to um, get across difficult stories that can sometimes be overwhelming and I, I read that the animation assists the audience in sort of being able to take in this story and sit with it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's so many different ways to tell a story, particularly within documentary. You know, a lot of people may assume it may just be kind of more observational and capturing life as it hasn't uh, as it happens, but there are so many different ways and different mediums to do so. And although, you know, this film does deal with a lot of very um, confronting things, um, it, it also has lots of light and love and levity within it as well. So um, it has a great balance of light and shade. And yes, animation is an, a good entry point into a film like this, but also ensures safety. Um, of the subjects who can't reveal themselves because of the information that they're disclosing in the film. So it's not only just, you know, um, a way for audiences to ease into it, but it's also a way to maintain um, the subject's safety and anonymity as well. 
Okay, well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this morning, Lauren. Um, we'd love to talk longer, but thanks so much for joining us. And uh, for our listeners um, who are interested in finding out more about the documentary field, um, there are uh, information and tickets um, on the AIDC website. They do operate on a day pass um, or season pass um, basis, so they are quite costly. But uh, if you want to check that out, it's www.aidc.com.au. And there are also public documentary screenings at ACME throughout the uh, conference, um, which is on from the 6th to the 9th of March. Um, And you can also see Flea at Melbourne Cinemas. I think that's out at the moment at Palace Cinemas. So, um, yeah, check that one out. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much. Okay, well, we're going to take a very quick break and then when we come back, we're going to be talking with T. O'Neill, the playwright. About this fascist group thing Evil men with racist views Spread it all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events. And learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Okay, before the break, we heard from Lauren Vermaldre, Director of Programming at the Australian International Documentary Conference. And our next guest is also exploring questions of belonging and home, inspired by her lived experience working with asylum seekers. T. O'Neill is an award-winning playwright, author and script-writing teacher whose new theatre work, Yalembo, is due to open at the new La Mama Theatre next week. It's a domestic drama thriller slashed with dark humour which confronts deep questions about love and responsibility. So here to tell us more on the line is T. O'Neill. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry about that hiccup. Before we launch in, I just wanted to note for our listeners that our conversation might venture into the uh, discussion about the experiences of asylum seekers. And if you feel this might be triggering for you, you might want to tune out for the next 15 minutes. Um, But let's get on with our conversation. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you give us a brief introduction to your play? Oh, okay. Well, um, Yalingbo um, is a Wurundjeri word meaning today. Um, And I was really interested in um, an old play of mine um, and um, finding the second half that was set in Australia and um, rejigging it for the events of Australia of today. Um, And I was very interested in um, 
transplanting the three characters into a suburban lounge room and um, and respond to events of, of, of how we live today. You know, what are the limits of our charity? How do we deal with with the big, when, when the very big questions come into our lounge room about how we choose to live, really, what decisions we need to make and so on. So I was very, I was very um, taken by that once I came back to Australia after years of living in Europe. And the genesis of the play actually began in Ireland, I believe? Yes, yes. I was doing my um, Masters in Playwriting at Birmingham with David Edgar um, and um, I had six months off to write my thesis and write my play, um, uh, but I needed money. Um, so I, I, I went and worked um, at an asylum seeker hostel in Ireland and taught English as a second language to 21 asylum seekers from all over the war-torn world, but many from Eastern Europe. Um, it was in 2001. Um, there were a, a lot of um, Russian and Bosnian refugees there. Um, and it really changed my life. It really opened up my world. Um, and it's interesting you were talking about the documentary Flea uh, because all these people had to leave, often quite suddenly, um, and for circumstances um, that uh, they had nothing to do with. Suddenly the, the country had changed, the circumstances um, of living there became untenable. We can see that. Um, they had to flee. Well, yes. we can see that in real time in Ukraine, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. So sadly, the play has become very pertinent. Um, at, yeah, at the moment, yes, it's it's, it's very sad. So, um, and it was very eye-opening for me because I realised I, I really got steeped in my privilege. So I had two passports. My father's Irish, so um, I had an Irish passport and um, I had an Australian passport. Um, and it was interesting. I was giving um, an ESL lesson when I got a call from the Dublin Embassy because I was uh, my passport was running out um, and I'd sent off my application to reapply for a new one. And um, they told me they'd lost my photographs. Um, and uh, I was up in Donegal in, in Ireland, and there were no Australians around, and normally you have to get an Australian citizen to sign the photographs for identity. And they said, um, don't worry, just send two photos to <laughs> to the embassy, and they just use them and, and um, make up my passport. And I went back into my class, and um, there were a lot of women there, and it was... An idea came to me that I could get one of their photos and put it in my Australian passport, send it off to the consulate in Dublin, and they would suddenly have um, Australian identity. That could be me in Australia and I could stay me in Ireland. Um, and the play was based very much on somebody who decides to do that, somebody braver than me. Mm. Yeah, really um, transformative moment when you open your mind up to those sorts of possibilities and the freedoms that come from having a passport. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. That um, um, deep feeling of... And, and a lot of the play is about um, charity. What are the limits 
of our charity? Where do we cross the line into helping people? I mean, I find Australia fascinating because we're so generous when it comes to people. Um, bushfires, um, if there is um, a flood or something overseas, we're a very generous nation. But there's certain areas where we're not generous. Um, and when we look at um, the offshore detention and, and the camps here, uh, we really do have to question, you know, what, where... Where does our charity stop and why? And the play looks at that a little bit. I guess we're not assisted by our uh, government policies in that area. They've, yes, they've yes, really so worked very hard to is. paint a negative picture of, of people that arrive um, in difficult circumstances seeking asylum. Um, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, we're not really given a very encouraging um, starting point there. No, no, that's right. So I, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm actually wanted to dig down deeper into, um, yeah, why, why that's, um, that has become quite a sore point for many years. I can remember visiting after the Tampa, coming back to Australia, um, and the Tampa incident. Um, so it's been going on now for 20 years, this, this, um, this interesting aspect of, of where we shut, shut off our, our our charity. And you talked about being aware of your privilege. Um, was that in the sense of being an educated person or was it more in the sense of um, growing up with that safety um, of having a passport and a citizenship in Australia? Yes, well, I had... Um like, I kind of wore this working-class hero business on my shoulder a little bit. I came from quite a poor Irish immigrant family. <laughs> um, but, of course, I, I have been very, very lucky. You know, so um, I, I, yeah, you know, I, did, I didn't go to a very good school, but I, I managed to get into VCA, and uh, they were very, very supportive of my work. And then I got a Churchill Fellowship. That's why I could go overseas um, and... Um, do my masters, and I went to the royal courts summer festival. So I was given a, a, a lot of opportunities. Of course, I worked very hard, but it was when I landed in in um, in the working with asylum seekers, I realised, you know, that I was also very very lucky. I mean, maybe yes, I worked very very hard, but the cards a lot of people are handed are a lot tougher than mine. Mm. No, and um, our our generosity. Should, we we need to understand that that yeah that um, that uh, yes these people are landed a really hard card. Yeah, it's one of the support. things that's um, yeah difficult um, in understanding privilege is is the starting point. Yeah, that you you begin your journey from, and um, people from war torn countries or where they're fearing persecution are. Starting from a very difficult rung on the ladder. Yes, absolutely. But interesting enough, given like I've met many who are then given refugee status and start their life, they've given given a, a little bit of of a help. <laughs> they flourish, and we we look at that inside the play as well. Given the opportunity, uh, given um, new status in a country, um, they contribute so much. Absolutely, and flourish. Yeah, we um, uh, we. It's really important. I, su I suppose what 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 I I find 
puzzling is <laughs> how this nation, this is such a good country because because of migrants. Mm. To, you know, there's um, the cont- contribution they give. So it is curious that we, we have this um, particular blind spot. Well, it sounds like the play opens up all sorts of questions. Um, so it's going to challenge audiences as well as... Um give them something to sit on the edge of their their seat and enjoy um yes well a lot of a lot of it because it's a it's a, like a pressure cooker play so it's 80 minutes and um you don't know what's going on at the beginning and you start to find out and you, you see three people who are faced with with quite extraordinary decisions and you see them in 80 minutes where all three of their lives completely changes well thank and, you and the decisions they make Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, Yelembo opens at La Mama Theatre in Carlton next Wednesday, March the 9th, and runs until March the 20th. And you can buy tickets uh, online at lamama.com.au. And i just uh, also point out that um, if anything in this uh, interview has raised questions for you, you can contact Lifeline 131114, uh, or if you are a person seeking asylum and uh, needing help or support, the Asylum Seeker <clears throat> Resource Centre on 039326 6066. Thanks very much and I'll hand back to Ella. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And next up, we're going to be talking about the latest report on climate change impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, which was released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change early this week. So with global heating on track to exceed 1.5 degrees, the report paints a pretty grim picture of the consequences of inaction. And it's a projection that 50 to 75 percent of the world's population could be exposed to deadly heat stress by the end of the century. So joining us now to unpack the latest report is the Acting Head of Research and Investigations at Greenpeace Australia Pacific, excuse me, uh, Dr. Alex Edney-Brown. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Alex. I am. Good morning. Um, So this report contains a lot of new data about the climate emergency. Um, Can you tell us what projections it makes about how quickly we're moving towards this 1.5 degrees of heating um, and what we need to do to slow it? Yeah, so this report shows that we're going to reach or surpass 1.5 degrees of warming, and that's in the near term, so before 2040 and potentially as soon as 2035. And the scientists have made that projection with very high confidence. So that's obviously really troubling. Um, The other thing that this report shows is that even temporarily overshooting 1.5 degrees before bringing global warming back global warming levels back down is actually going to be really dangerous. Um, This is because climate feedback loops will start kicking in 
and making it really difficult to bring warming levels back down. In terms of slowing it down, I would say that we actually need to stop this from happening at all. Um, that would require a very quick um, and deep cut to our current um, greenhouse gas emissions. So at Greenpeace, we, we call for a 75% reduction on fossil fuels by 2030. Um, this government is nowhere near close to reaching that. It has an extremely weak emissions reduction target. And as we've seen, it's still expanding coal mines and subsidising new gas exploration. So on this current trajectory, it really doesn't look like we will uh, we will be able to stop 1.5 degrees of warming, but we really need to do everything we can to try. Yeah, yeah, we keep hearing that these are the, um, the really important years and times yeah, running out. Um, just to rewind a second there, you spoke about climate feedback loops. Could you explain that a little? Yeah, so feedback loops are where um, things start happening in our ecosystems that just have knock-on effects. So with further degrees of warming, we'll see things like the Arctic permafrost thawing, and that will bring all of these emissions back into the atmosphere and lead to more global warming. Similarly, you'll see the thing, things like the collapse of forests, um, and we know that forests are huge carbon sinks. So as global warming leads to the collapse of forests, those forests then release more emissions into the atmosphere, and then there are fewer trees around to then sort of absorb or what's called sequester that carbon. So, yeah, it really leads to a situation where you have, like, quite quick um, global warming without the sort of natural ecosystems in place to act as carbon sinks. And the report mentions the likelihood of an increase in floods. And I mean, we've seen some pretty uh, incredible floods in Brisbane at the moment. It's really um, alarming. And um, so can you tell us what are some of the implications of the report for Australia, both for our natural environment and also for humans? Yeah, so it's <laughs> not like a, um, a particularly pretty picture is painted for Australia and it's a um, quite distressing reading for our country to be honest so there are implications around human health so with more heat waves projected and more bushfires projected we'll see more urban heat related deaths um, and the report actually specifies Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane as being um, in store for 600 more urban heat related deaths per year than currently, um, than currently occur. We also have things like bushfire, more extreme bushfire season, um, which will lead to more bushfire-related deaths, more respiratory cardiovascular illnesses. Um, and, yeah, as you pointed out, the floods that we're currently seeing in northern New South Wales and Queensland at the moment, the increased... Um, regularity and intensity of extreme weather events is going to lead to this ha this kind of thing happening more often. Wow, yep. And um, what about for our neighbours in the Pacific? What does the um, report predict here? So for our Pacific neighbours, uh, and this is quite a hard topic actually, we had quite a difficult conversation at work yesterday with our Pacific colleagues where they basically broke down in tears, which was quite hard to, hard to see, but for our Pacific, we see things in the report around sea level rise leading to, you know, that global warming exceeds 1.5 degrees and sea level rise will 
will be something that causes a submergence of some of those particularly low-lying Pacific islands, so Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, Kiribati. Um, we also see declines in fish catch, so up to 50% um, or more of available fish catch will no longer be available. So that obviously has really big impacts on food security for the Pacific Islands. And then more severe tropical cyclones as well. Um, and we've seen cyclones cause billions of dollars worth of damage and loss of lives in the Pacific. So that's obviously a really troubling projection. Yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking to hear, um, especially when Absolutely. you think it's... Um People have been saying this for a while. I mean, I remember watching a documentary on Tuvalu back when I was in high school about 15 years ago and people were asking for help and asking for action. Um, so it's yeah. sad to hear it's still yeah, the same absolutely. story. Um, yeah, our Pacific colleagues are feeling very, I mean, they're feeling heartbroken, but they're also feeling very angry and frustrated because, as you say, like they've been demanding climate action for decades now. Yeah. And rightly so. And we know the climate policies of both um, the LNP and um, ALP are underwhelming. Um, do you think this report will provide an impetus for change? Have the government responded to the report yet? It should. It should provide an impetus for change. I think if either the coalition or ALP reads this report and decides that business as usual is okay, then that that in my mind is criminal negligence considering what this shows for Australian lives and livelihoods not being on the line. Um, whether it will provide an impetus for changes in other stories, particularly as both parties are currently in the pocket of in the pockets of fossil fuel companies receiving huge donations from them. So yeah, I, my my answer is that it should provide an impetus for change, but whether it will um, I mean, we'll only have to wait to see and do everything that we can to to vote in this election with the climate in mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, the LNP have set a pretty low bar. And sadly, um, yeah, ALP don't seem to be too worried about getting above it. Um, and um, what are some of the opportunities for Australia in transitioning to a more sustainable economy? There are a lot, a lot of opportunities. And, in fact, um, if we don't, we're actually less very exposed in terms of um, the jobs of people who work in coal mining and, and other fossil fuel industries because what we'll see is the export market for those um, resources just completely decline in the next couple of decades. So those people's jobs are actually on the line. And there is, there's a lot of opportunity in transitioning to a more sustainable economy. We have new job creation and things like the renewable energy sector and regenerative agriculture, um, electrifying transport. Um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. Another thing that this report shows is how soon we need to be implementing climate adaptation measures and building what's referred to as climate resilient development. And that's going to be a huge task. Um, that requires things like building new infrastructure that's going to be more uh, resilient against extreme weather, requires retrofitting existing infrastructure, it requires things like planning for what population growth is going to look like in Australia. Like it's, it's not a good plan for all of 
the future Australians to live in areas that are going to experience um, flooding or are going to experience extreme bushfires to where do those people go and like where do we need to build those new communities. So that in itself is a huge task that will create a lot of new jobs. So there's a lot of opportunity in there as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the focus on the economy, even if, yeah, economy is your main focus is such a um, uh, short-term solution when we've got these massive issues that are approaching us at speed. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this morning, but thank you so much for making the time to speak to us today. I really appreciate it, even if it's not with good news. (laughs) Yeah, never good news when we work at Greenpeace, but hopefully we can all put up a stronger fight and see a better future. Absolutely. All right, thanks, Alex, and thanks for your work. Cheers. Bye. And that was Dr. Alex Edney-Brown, the Acting Head of Research and Investigations at Greenpeace Australia Pacific, uh, filling us in on the latest intergovernmental panel report on climate change. And that's all we've got time for today, so a big thank you for tuning in. Just realised in the break before we've actually had an all-women show this morning, completely incidental, which is exciting. Um, And good ahead of International Women's Day next week, where 3CR are going to be holding a special broadcast. So tune in if you have the time. Uh, We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, stick around for Stick Together. Shop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.